Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, good evening, and welcome to Can We Talk For Real, Block Talk Radio. It is Wednesday night. I'm Terry, out of Chicago. Just want to say to everybody, happy Wednesday. This is hump day. If you didn't hump today, then I don't know what to tell you. You should be tired like everybody else. But want to just let everyone know that tonight's show is going to be quite interesting, um, not just because, as a woman, you want to know how your relationships are formed, but because if there's any male, men, however you want to define yourself that's on the line, you'll probably get a chance to actually see and hear uh, a little bit about something about women that you didn't know. And it might be good for the soul. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Terry. How you doing? Okay. How you doing? Okay. So guess what? What? My computer's driver decided it wanted to go down. So it came back up. And I can see you. And I can hit the button. I can hear you. Okay, now I went over to the red. (laughs) It's a funny thing. Okay, well, I know that when I I called and it like cut me off, like so I was like, hmm. Yeah, that that was the that was the driver that decided they wanted to go out. Mhm. So, but yep, but it's back up. So how's uh, your week? Because mine has definitely been a week. This has definitely been a hump day. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I, and that it seems like the past couple of weeks have gone by. Real, real fast, I was like, oh, my God, it's Wednesday already, you know? Exactly. Mm. It was like we were just here last week. Mm-hmm. And we're back. So, yep. let's talk about mm-hmm. this craziness a little bit that's out here. Um, the, the president sent out a letter to the schools about our transgender youth using the bathrooms. Um, people jumped on. I mean, like I said, it got mixed reviews. People, you know, were supportive, and then people weren't supportive. Uh, I just had an article like, a couple hours ago where Mississippi was for it, and that is kind of sliding back, backwards off of it. Here, here's one thing that states that are real, they were real clear when we first got. President Obama in office is like, well, you know, we don't want to be a part of the United States. You know, you, you, y'all selected him. You know, we didn't know whatever the case that whatever their argument was. When it floods, why you why are you asking for the money from the people up north? If you don't want to bother with us. Well, if we can, know, it, we can support you, well, you can support what we want. You know, it's just it's just like it's that game, you know, because. All the very ones who are saying this, you know, like you said, it's the same thing. Let something happen where they they have some kind of natural disaster. They're going to be calling right quick, but then they're not. And, you know, and if you listen to it, I mean, it, I mean, why are we in bathroom in the bathrooms anyhow, okay? When, I mean, more and more they show, what is that one? Dennis Hastert, who's one of their boys, just got connected you know, convicted of, of child molestation. 
I mean, you know, for the mm-hmm. people who, you don't hear them doing anything about the people who are really committing these crimes, which they want to play at the on trans people. But this is just like their hatred of the of the moment. And, um, you know, it's just crazy. But, no, I mean, you know, like uh, if, if something goes wrong, they're going to be right there. Oh, we need financial, and, and how come, and probably put the critique, even a President Obama, that like you know, like oh, he how come he wasn't there like six days ago, you know, before it happened, you know. So it's like you you, you just can't win, you know, really, right. you just can't win. And I think that one of the things that I like about you know, because really, I mean, let's face it, he knows what time it is, you know, it's about you know his his term is up. He's like you know, hey, I'm just doing it. I don't care, you know. It's like right. you know, who is it? Um, one some comic has this, this website. It's like. So uh, hashtag Obama don't care. And you know what? It really, it's like, you know, no matter what I've done all these years, you don't give me credit for anything, so now I'm going to do what I feel is right. And, you know, shame on you, you know. You know exactly. Be mad. Exactly. Be mad. And then here's the thing. You can't go to your job. I can't go to my job. And, and people out here who are all on board with, you know, the Republicans, the Democrats, people who are against what the president is doing, and who don't want to talk to the man that he's selecting for the Supreme for the uh, Supreme Court, we can't go to our job and say we're not going to do it and don't mm-hmm. do it because we're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. But you, you got elected by us, and you can tell us you're not going to do your job, which is, put, which is talk to this man and put him in. It has nothing to do with the next president because he didn't die on the next president's watch. He died on this president's watch. Mm-hmm. And, and when and do people on the justice? That's how it's supposed to be. And when do the, the justice even open their mouths and say something like, "Look, this is how it's supposed to be." We and, and I guess they don't really mean anything because the higher courts gave everybody the right to marry who they want. But you see what's happening. Mm-hmm. State and religion I mean, you know, has so, bumped heads again. Uh, and you know, and I mean, and that's the whole thing. And like, there are already, it's on the books. I mean, in fact, this country was was founded, you know, so that people could do what they want to to separate church and state. And now mm-hmm. suddenly we became this Christian nation, which we aren't. Right. I mean, that yep. was not in the founding documentation. But now suddenly we've become this and where some things are okay and a whole lot, everything else isn't based on, and whose version of Christianity is it anyhow? You know, I mean, because there's some people who saying that it isn't, so I mean, you know, it's just gotten totally out of out of. It's gone wild. So what? Where my religion is telling me that you know, if, if you've got a boy in a girl's bathroom, well, if you believe your religion tells you that God made everyone in their image and likeness, so what are you saying that God screwed up? You know, God screwed up when mm-hmm. He made trans kids. You know, they're coming mm-hmm. out of somebody's body. And the body they're coming out, if you're going to say that the woman gave birth to the LGBTQ, whatever letters you want to call everybody who is different, if you want to say those kids are acceptable, then you can't accept the mother because it came from the mother, and she's the image of God also. It and came you know, from a part of a man. Hear, he's a father. Uh-huh. And, you know, and you, and you don't hear them saying, okay, they're all right to life. Well, right to life means beyond protecting a fetus. It means protecting that child after it's born and supporting mm-hmm. the child and raising healthy children, okay? And so some of these children that even, that you will say that under no circumstances 
should you abort. So, which to me leads to say, I mean, if you follow their logic, that means that if there is some way that you said, oh, I'm afraid I might have a gay child, they'd say, well, you know, tough, you know, you got to have that baby. Okay, then afterwards you're going to say, well, yeah, but we're not going to support it. We're going to let it be harassed. We're not going to acknowledge it. Like one moment it, it, it's all human, and then the next it's not, you know. So right. I mean, it's just hypocritical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hypocritical. I mean, it really <laughs> is. When you listen to them talk, you know, when you listen to them talk, even some of them who are like, you know, uh, all that, you know, where they can love and, but this just part is, where does it talk about transsex, transgender people in the Bible? Where, do, where does it talk about them? You know, where, do, where where is that verse that says, thou shalt not let transgender people use the damn bathroom? I mean, really, you know? <laughs> I don't think it's anywhere in the Bible. I think that's the problem that uh, people have. They want to pick and choose and select these uh, passages, but... When it comes down to it, there's a lot you don't have concrete anything on. And this has been rewritten and rewritten and copywritten and copywritten. So now it's really a whole bunch of people's interpretation of what they think it's supposed to mean. And what year is this? Because if all this was back then, they didn't have us. uh And this, okay, the world is not a Christian world. There are many religions. There are many interpretations, uh, even within the the whole uh, umbrella of Christianity. But we are not a Christian world. So it's like, you know, that's not how it is. So you can't go by that. You can't go by that. And when you have dissent within your own, everybody who's under the Christian umbrella is talking the same thing. Well, you know what? Yeah. I say, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's flame up a bush and get there, get it right from 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 God had to it. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, right. Cause that's what I, it always seems to me that you know, because as you look, things evolve and things come out. You know, when they're supposed to. You know, if God didn't want us to to, are they going to turn back everything? Because way back in the day when the Bible was written, we didn't have television. We didn't have cell phones. You certainly didn't have Facebook, Twitter, and everything else. So I don't see you denying that. Okay. Sure did. So if all of this comes out and we evolve to that, you know, and, and like I said, you know, I liked it when um, we had the Charlotte Clergy Coalition, and they called it like they thought, you know, that if you went back and you read about this person, I mean, if you're going to go all Christian on it, if you went back and you read about this person, he wasn't in a big church. He walked around everybody. He turned away nobody. You know, he he ministered to lepers, to whores, to everybody. You know, so if you're going to go that way, you know, when they're talking about what would Jesus do, I think if you read the book, it sort of tells you pretty clear. You know, he wasn't doing none of this. You know, none of this, you know. Of course not. He 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 knew what he was supposed to do. We yeah, we don't have a clue. You know. You know we get we get into the point of, and for the most part, but but this current day Christianity has gone from this this book that was about love into where how long has it been used as a tool of oppression, of conquest, 
you know, I mean, one of the things that the slave master did, the first thing they did was they were going to beat us until until we were ready to, you know, accept this religion. But then he didn't want us to read and do it because, hey, you might try to escape. You know I mean, so it's like, you know, it's been a tool of oppression. Yeah, let's let's just get real and, you know, keep the separation of state and power and treat everyone equally. That's the bottom line. You know, that's what, what we're taught. You know, no matter what religion exactly. you're, you go to, you're taught to treat everyone equally. Exactly. And, I mean, it's just... It's just some common sense lessons we just don't. We act like we don't have common sense on. Mm -hmm. No, it's just that. And then, and I guess the sad part is we talk about um, support. I mean, we always talk about support, me and you. And we Mm -hmm. can't even sometimes get in our own community. Mm Mm-hmm. But we sure want to talk about everybody else giving to us. Yeah, and you know, and our community needs to be out there and support it because you know, okay, and it's and and isn't it funny how hate goes around? At one time, black people couldn't go in the same bathroom, right? Because we, oh, you know, what horrible things gonna happen if we went in the same bathroom? So hate is hate. That was it then. Mm-hmm. This is it now. Same thing, one word, hate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. And, and, and it's so bad because, you know, it's not just, you know, hate against. Now it's hate against men, women, children, whatever your gender is, um, where, where you come from, what you got on your head, uh, what shoes you got on. I mean, it's, it's, it's so embedded, so deep now. Mm-hmm. It's like it's ridiculous. Any given day, some some, and and now you know, bigot in the name of the father. I mean, which seem to be bigger than the ones who are doing right. You know, the bigot in the name of the father can decide to look at you and go like, "Well, my father says that ain't right." And you know, and if he can get a big enough platform, mm-hmm. you know, then they attack you. And even when you look, when you know, when you look at, like they're saying it now that Trump is trying to like massage his message and stuff. But look at all the hate he's riled up. You can't, mm-hmm. you let that out, that genie out the bottle, you can't stuff it back. And and those who believe that will say, well, you know, he has to. And he'll and he'll spin it. Well, you know, I have to for the rest of it. But he's let that genie out the bottle, and it's really shown a very ugly side of this country. Mm-hmm. Because right now this country is named the United States of America. They need to take that United off of there because we are so far from united at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we and we haven't been, and we haven't been. And I mean, to really stop and look at it, because you know, I forget what they said a longer time ago. They said the most segregated place time in America is on Sunday mornings when black people go to their churches, white people go to their churches. And now, you know, I've seen Asian church. I mean, everybody's got their own church to go to. And that's not united. And then you want to say one nation under God. Well, I guess as long as you go to your own separate corners, you know. And so we really, after all the dust settles, there is a time for healing. We need to talk about you know, not just go like after November, okay, well, well, that's done. We need to talk about some of this ugly stuff that we've seen and heard because clearly it's always been right under the under the surface. And Trump 
Candace is just see like a picket scab off, and it just like just it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is, it's, that's so sad. Well, so we uh, we love our women, you know. That's 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 mm-hmm. that's just given. So last week we talked about talked to a mother and daughter about their um, their bond and how the daughter was lesbian, same sex, love same sex, gender, wow, loving woman, and how the mother had to come around to understand her daughter in order to have that mother-daughter relationship after all they had been through. Now, that was a story for you. That was something Mm -hmm. to remind you that, you know, no matter what black mothers go through, mothers are going to take care of it. Take care of the children. They're going to find a way to, to, to love them no matter what. That's one thing. Tonight, though, we're going to take a different spin. Um, we're actually going to talk about the mother-daughter bond, um, women transforming same-gender loving women's relationships, talk about um, partner selection, relationship dynamics, all that through the teachings of and the uh, the workshops that are ran by a young lady by the name of Bonnie Harrison. I was going to actually tell you a little bit about her and her background, but I'm going to let her do it. But I do want to read this because I thought this kind of encompasses who she is. Um, someone and, you know, before herself. you do it, before okay. you do it, I think oh, you need to do disclaimer. the disclaimer. Because yep. this, this one, this show, I think that a lot of people are going to have – some questions and stuff, and it's mm-hmm. going to open up some doors to where they might want to want to look forward and go and get that professional consultation. So mm-hmm. our disclaimer is the views and opinions expressed on Can We Talk For Real, Block Talk Radio Show, host, co-host, guest, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. The host appreciates your opinion and your openness. Can We Talk For Real does not condone disrespect to the show content, co-hosts, and or guests. The host or co-hosts are not counselors and advise you to seek professional consultation if needed. And although she has a deep resume, she's not, can't do, you know, it's not one-on-one, so this might (laughs) open some doors so people, you know, make some notes. You might, well, you know, want to contact her, but it might trigger some things and know that we're not going to have all the answers tonight. You might need that next step. Exactly. Exactly. So how she describes herself is my life's work is guided by my spiritual assignment and fueled by world history and a deep desire for peace. I'm committed to supporting and promoting a call of conscious transformation evolution and healing within people of African descent in world communities. My approach is to use the technology of African and indigenous spirituality, grief, and ritual as a catalyst for healing. The focus of my work is on healing the broken relationships we have with ourselves, family, community, environment, God, and the African continent. That's deep. People who talk about relationships. We have people who talk about, you know, how, you know, you need to, 
to to talk to someone or how you need to look, you know, inside. But I think I'm with you, Michelle. Tonight's show is probably going to open up a whole can of worms for a lot of people, which is what we do here at Can We Talk For Real. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is we want to welcome Bonnie Harrison to the show. Hey, Bonnie. Well, how are you? Hello, Bonnie. Hi, how are you? You're okay. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I wasn't sure that you knew that I was on the call earlier because um, I think you probably had it muted um, or something. But anyway, I'm here and um, excited about being here, having a conversation with you and and our audience. Um, Every chance I get to have these kinds of conversations, I look at it as a blessing because I'm from the old school of each one, reach one, each one, teach one. So okay. I think with, with what's going on in our community and in, in, in the world at large, we need all the support we can get from each other in particular because I think it's up to us to define what our needs are and, and um, how we want to get them met. And I think we have in our own communities enough skill, enough talent to take care of all of our needs. We just need to be much more we need to work much more, I think, in community. So that's what I love about the work you're doing because it brings people into a conversation that creates a community. So I'm I'm happy to be a part of that tonight. Thank you for inviting me on. We're definitely happy to have you, happy to have you. So let's dive on in, Bonnie. Tell the audience, uh, I know I was looking at Facebook and I was um, – I've noticed a lot of people who know your work, and a lot of people are excited about tonight. So I think that sparked some good conversation. But tell the listening audience a little bit about you before we get into what it is you actually do and what we're going to do tonight. Okay. Um, I am um, a woman that was reared in the segregated South. Um, My experiences spanned... um, 50 years at least of social justice and uh, activism and work, Um, I got involved in the, what was then known as the sit-down demonstrations in North Carolina uh, as a young person. And I was involved in the first sit-down demonstration we had in, in Raleigh. So my all of my work is informed by those earlier childhood experiences and my experiences as a, as a black, same gender loving woman. Um, who lived in the South and has lived in the Northeast, and I've traveled uh, different places in the world. I studied in Africa. So all of those experiences informed the work that I do, even though I'm trained as a clinician. um, My background is psychology and mental health uh, and substance abuse and alcoholism. I still incorporate um, my, my cultural reference. Um, I incorporate African spirituality and indigenous spirituality in my work. And when I began working um, really very vigorously in our community was in the 80s. In 1983, I formulated, formed an organization called WITS, the Women's Institute for Training and Support Services. But prior to then, I had been working in substance abuse, and people were dying left and right, it happened to have been a, a program that was primarily uh, for Latino and Latinas. And um, I was a deputy director there at the time. 
and we were just having people dying and getting sick and getting skinny and women were getting sick and the babies were dying and it just was crazy and no one knew what what it was about and so eventually something uh, was defined as slim was what was diagnosed that these people had but the part, the reality is that was the beginning of the AIDS pandemic and that was in 1977 so some people in the audience might not even they might not have even been going to school in 1977. They're so young, um, but that's how my involvement um, really was was spawned um, when it comes to working with my community on a large scale. And I um, was approached by some um, what was then called black gay men. We use the term same gender loving now. A lot of us. But they had heard of my work, and I was using a holistic model, and it was Africa-centric. And they came to me and asked me if I would set up a group for them, and I did. And um, then there were women that would come, and women started getting sick. And so I started doing this work really uh, around the whole issue of AIDS and, and mental health, because along with the illness, was there were a lot of mental health issues, and a lot of individuals had those issues before they became infected. So um, just over the years, my work has just expanded. I've always worked with women, but I've always included men in my work because I'm, my perspective is that of um, uh, people of African descent, and the diasporan people and people on the continent. So I don't limit what I do to just gender-specific work. However, my focus is on women, uh, primarily, and um, the family system and men as well as children are a part of of the group of people that I'm interested in and I do work with. So how do we get to the conversation about mothers and daughters um, and the, the mother-daughter bond? And it came about as a result of me having a clinical practice, uh, working as a, a psychotherapist, and discovering that it didn't matter who the individuals were or um, what ethnic group they came from or what country they came from. At some point, everybody talked about their mother and issues that... Um, they were having in their relationships, I was beginning to see how they were connected to unresolved issues with their moms. And move forward, fast forward to 2004, I was running a um, a trauma and grief group uh, with women. And one of the techniques I use is journaling. And so I had women, including myself, to write letters to our mothers and women wrote some of the most amazing and fantastically powerful material. And um, we ended up, I was teaching at the time, and one of the universities, um, the, the uh, director asked me to, she knew about the work, and she asked me if I would, during Women's History Month, read some of the letters, and I did. And then from different schools, I was asked to do this work, and it ended up with me going from different places throughout the state and on TV and on the radio, um, doing these mommy letters. So mommy letters then morphed into um, these spoken word stage performances, and um, there's a workbook that's um, being completed and a book, which is called Mommy Letters, which is somewhat the model that I, a lot of people, not a lot, but some people are using now, and that is to interviewing women, uh, getting them to tell their story, and putting it into book form because that's what Mommy Letters um, 
blaze sort of like blaze the trail for but uh this is sort of new for our communities to address these issues with um mothers and daughters and how that impacts relationships um it's kind of new and the bin I put on it is a little different because I'm talking about how the bond between mothers and daughters is impacted by um white supremacy and uh, then intergenerational child-rearing practices play out uh, the dynamics that we experience in our relationships that get played out as a result of our relationships with our mothers. Um, and that's kind of where I am. Now, another thing that I do is I recognize that just to talk about these issues is not enough because what they do is they stir up a lot of unconscious emotions, a lot of our behavior and our um, our feelings are based on what I call ancestral inheritance, um, and that's about us inheriting through our DNA memories and behaviors that come from our ancestors and through our bloodline, and that gets transmitted uh, intergenerationally. So what you have is what people that are involved in Christianity call generational curses, but what they're talking about is a set of behaviors and a set of um, experiences that go on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, um, which will happen because these these ideas and attitudes and behaviors are um, passed down through child-rearing practices. So what our great-great-grandmother knew and did, she passed it on to the great-great-grandmother, then the great-grandmother passed it on to grandmother, Grandmother passed it on to your mother, and your mother passed it on to me. And if I had uh, given birth, I would have passed it on to my children, and they would pass it on to theirs. So someone has to break the cycle. So I got to the point that I didn't do, I stopped doing as much individual work clinically as I had been doing, and I began to focus more on um, healing work, uh, using a healing model that I had created. and I use um, grief rituals um, and forgiveness um, as a way of addressing trauma and loss individually and and collectively with respect to our communities. And so I put on these grief rituals and I facilitate them uh, in, in various states and in various places. And a lot of women... Um, as a matter of fact, I'm doing one in, in August in Charlotte, North Carolina. But a lot of women um, really are in a lot of pain because of their relationships with their mothers that are not healed. A lot of women are in a lot of pain and dysfunction because they're not able to acknowledge that some of the stuff that goes on in their lives has to do with their relationship with their mothers. Because we would like to most often idealize our moms um, we don't want to say anything bad about them. We, we'll we say, oh, I have a wonderful relationship with my mother. And that might be the case, which has nothing to do with, with something that she said or did 25 years ago that you had hurt feelings about, and it was never resolved. So it's still down there in your bag of stuff. And um, it gets transferred very often to our partners because when you're in same gender-loving relationships, then what gets triggered is unconscious memories of your issues and relationships with your mom. And um, particularly when you look at the fact that nurturance and dependence 
are two of the main stays of any relationship, and it's certainly the the core of the relationship with mothers and their children, their infants. And it's during that process of uh, being nurtured and having to be dependent on another person, and then the need to have a separate self, and you go through that whole separation process, and that can or cannot work well. And the next thing we know, we're adults, and we're in relationships, and we've chosen to be with women. And when the issue of um, who's going to negotiate around nurturance and how dependency needs are going to be met and handled, um, when the issue of power and control and negotiating that comes up in relationships, um, the whole issue around engulfment and um, nurturance, these are very scary spaces to go to for anyone, but particularly for women who are in relationships with other women because what gets triggered, even when they're not aware of it, is their relationship with their mother. So if mom was not nurturing and mom was not, uh, and mom was engulfing, for example, um, if you couldn't depend on her to be consistent uh, when it came to mothering and nurturing and intimacy, then when you're in a relationship with someone else, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to enter that relationship because you want to recapture something you had that was lost, or you want to gain something that you never had and wanted. So when we get in our relationships with women, um, that stuff gets played out, and that begins to be form the crux of the problems that crop up in our relationships. And very often, it's uh, unresolved. Those issues end up with us breaking up and or choosing the wrong kind of people, and we just have these serial relationships and we end up choosing the same kind of people over and over because we're operating out of a relationship template that we don't we're not even aware of. So that's kind when of you how, do the grief, um, when you do the grief workshops are are sometimes um are all with everyone is has their mother passed on or are sometimes because sometimes, you know, particularly in our relationships we've some people have split from their parents or maybe haven't seen them, and they, but there's still that need to grieve that. So when you're yeah. meeting with people, are they just, are they grieving whether or not the mother is deceased or not? Are they going through that process of grieving that motherhood relationship? Very often, very often when I do grief rituals, um, and let's say I do it with women and men, the individuals don't come into the into the ritual being conscious of the, of um, what went on and not with between them and their moms, generally. However, people do come. There are people that have enough awareness and and they've done work, or they haven't, but they know that they have issues that are that are connected to their relationship with their mothers. Um, I I then you have women who, for example, I have groups that I run on the phone using a conference call line. And I do these these uh, groups with women who come to the group because they, if, if it's a group around the mother-daughter bond and healing the broken relationship, they come to that group because that's, they know that's what's going to be addressed. And they have made a conscious decision to work on those issues. Um, sometimes I'll be running a group and people come because they're having relationship issues one way or the other with their children, with on the job, with their partners, or with themselves. Some of us have terrible relationships with ourselves. We can't. We don't keep our word with ourselves. We can't tr- trust ourselves to do what we say we're going to do. Um, I'm good. I mean, I ate a bag of little Debbies 
this week. I don't even eat sweets, but I, all of a sudden I wanted these little Debbies. Now, I know that eating a bag, of this whole bag of little chocolate-covered donuts is not going to help my waistline. So when I don't walk for a week and I'm not doing my stretching and toning, you know, my, I'm not having a good relationship with myself. So I have to constantly um, go through rituals myself to stay on top of my own behavior because I don't want to be an unhealed healer. I don't believe that people can heal anybody anyway, but I do teach people how to and show them where their skills are and where their strengths are so they can they can facilitate their own healing. I don't call myself a healer. I'm having enough trouble trying to heal myself. <laughs> but what I am able to do is share with people what I've learned throughout the course of my healing work, and it's been going on for many, many years. So quite naturally, I might have some information that someone, I, I'm 74 years old, and uh, even though people don't believe it, it's true. I know it when I get up in the mornings and when I sit in a chair and I get up and it's like, oh, this is stiff and that stiff because I'm I'm not as active as I used to be. But um, the bottom line is, though, that um, we all have work to do, and we're not always aware of where the, the genesis of the work uh, comes from. All we know is that we're having difficulty navigating our lives. And um, many of us want to do something about it. Some of us are so damaged by our experiences that we just have accepted the role of victim and we get a payoff for being a victim. We get a lot of attention and all kinds of secondary gains come from being a victim. So some people are never going to give that role up and that was difficult for me to acknowledge and accept when I was working as a clinician early in my career because I thought that people, you know, should do what I thought they should do and that's want to get well. And uh, it's just not that everybody is ready at that particular time to do the work. It doesn't mean they don't want to get well, but they're just not willing to do the work right then and there. Did you at any time travel to Africa? Yes, uh, I went to the University of Legon, uh in Accra for um, one. For one, that was in 1972. That was my first trip to Africa. But I've gone back since then, visited several countries, and developed friendships with people, most of whom are in this country now are there in Europe. But yes, I have traveled uh, to Africa, and what was very um, gratifying for me too was to understand the the strong connection I had for Yoruba culture, um, and particularly religion. And when I had my DNA done, I had the matrilineal form of the DNA done. So we did the DNA based on my mom and her DNA markings. And it came back 100% Yoruba from Nigeria. And mm-hmm. so that was that was really a powerful um, awareness. A lot of us know, we all know that we come from the continent of Africa somewhere. Um, most of us, are, our roots are there, because some of us are First Nation people, and uh, all we know is our First Nation um, heritage, as, including, of course, the African-American heritage. But uh, some of us, our heritage started here, um, and we had relatives that had migrated to the U.S. Uh, years and years before Columbus came. We did come before Columbus. 
but uh, <laughs> yeah. So I what? don't know if that answered your question. It did. It did. Because okay. I guess I'm getting to you use the motherland kind of as the catalyst of how you get to how we as women um, interact. Know, what what traits we picked up, you know, what uh what are we looking for? Because when you said about the relationship between the mother and the daughter, it just something just came to me. It, I remember hearing a girl looks for her father to marry. A boy mm-hmm. looks for his mother to marry. How mm-hmm. the, how is that isn't that like a isn't that a conflict? Well, isn't that statement kind of right, but then in again, it's like you said we don't know it's kind of wrong. Well, I don't think people are talking about that from a uh, a sexual and affectional perspective. What I think they're talking about is that our mothers and fathers are our first, first images. The first image you see is your mother, and you grow in her stomach. So your first experiences with a woman, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female or intersex. It doesn't matter. You... Generally, you generally and historically, we grow in the stomachs of, of of the females, and when we come through that birth canal, um, ostensibly, the first contact we have um, in terms of intimacy is with our birth mother. Even in surrogacy, um, the very often when there the surrogate mother has the baby. She handles that baby before she hands it over to the the surrogate mother, until the uh, the mother that's going to get the child. So we come here with our first experiences, human experiences, being female, and we don't differentiate. I mean, biologically, into male or female um, until you know the fetus is the zygote and fetus is what eight weeks or something like that. So everybody is female in the beginning. So all of us come with uh, a feminine and some of us, and a masculine. Um, Some of us have more of one than the other. But through child rearing and through nurturing, you bond with your mother in a totally different way than you do your father. And if you grow up in a, a healthy household, then a girl, if she is a, a heterosexual female, is going to want her husband or her partner, her lover, to have basically the same qualities that her father has if he's a good enough daddy. The same thing is true if it's when it comes to your mom. Uh, if she's a good enough mom, mommy, then you would want someone to have the attributes that she has. So I don't think that um, it has that much to do with what Freud would say, Oedipal complexes and all that. That's real for him and his um, Viennese culture back in the 1700s or whenever it was, uh, 1800s, whenever Freud was born. Um and he had issues with his the size of his penis, and he also had issues when it came to boundaries when it with, with respect to his sister. So very often we have to be careful when we are listening to individuals who define reality around their 
reality and their models and constructs. Um, and we have to realize that we have a culture and we have constructs and models that make sense for us. What's gotten us in trouble now as a people is we're trying to live and fit into a model and a construct that was designed by people that enslaved us. And, it's, of course, will never work for us. It'll never work. So it was important for me to reintroduce uh, to my people and in some cases to introduce African culture from the perspective of spiritualities and indigenous spiritualities, which have been around, African spirituality has been around for 6,000 years. And it amazes me that a lot of us have adopted Christianity, which is uh, the newest religion on the planet. Um, and have been taught to reject and, and to demonize uh, our own forms of spirituality, um, which was not about dogma. Religion really ends up being about dogma. And Do you find that that tapping into that spirituality, because, like, you know, you said, like, in a, if you came from, like, the loving, nurturing things, but sometimes I'm sure that you find people that, maybe don't even know who their birth mother is or very they've had limited experience or even in parenting. Do you find that tapping into that spirituality, that tradition of the of that indigenous spirituality, does that help those people? It absolutely does because when once you tap into African and indigenous spirituality, you're tapping into the realm of the ancestors. And when you tap into the realm of the ancestors and you're involved in ritual, then you begin to have a spiritual experience. And you begin to uh, understand things and know things in a way that's totally different if you're dealing with it intellectually. So Mm -hmm. spiritual experiences and intellectual experiences will produce different results. And um, so when I'm doing, let's say, my grief rituals, the first thing we have to do is we um, acknowledge and ancestralize our ancestors, because um, this is show is this is not the show for talking about uh, you know how all that works, but we have different levels of ancestors, and um, so when we understand that traditionally, historically, Africans always communicated with their ancestors, uh, because. The belief is, the knowledge is, that once people transition and they are acknowledged and are able to make that transition smoothly to um, the spirit world and to another place, they are more able to help you then than they were when they were alive. Mm. Because when you are a human in human form, you are bound by the limits of your body. Mm-hmm. And you can't do for, for your family and your friends and yourself what you could do if you were operating just out of pure spirit. And if your spirit is with the Creator, then you you have available to you all the information. So um, one of the things that happens in my rituals is there's a whole section dedicated to ancestralization. And unfortunately, one of the things we do, because we don't know any better, when we have Kwanzaa and we have these different events, we, we'll call out the names of the ancestors. So everybody's asked to call out the name of somebody they know that died, and they'll very often take some water and they'll pour it in a flower pot on the on the ground, and, and um, you know, there are a few words spoken, and that's it. But what you've done is you have now gotten the attention of your ancestors. 
and they're waiting for you to communicate with them past that point. But now you mm. still you're involved in the 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 event, and you go home and you've got warm and fuzzy feelings, or you've got sad feelings because you're thinking about all your friends that have died and all of that. But you go home, you don't have an ancestral altar, you don't have anything in place to honor them. We might have pictures sitting around of our, our relatives that have passed, but we don't look at that as an altar. They might be sitting on a table with some other dead people that we know, but that is actually an ancestral altar. It just hasn't been ancestralized. So we are not in the habit like indigenous Africans are in, um, of going to that altar and talking to them as though they are there. We're not in the habit of when we think about a special meal that they liked, preparing that meal and putting some on a plate and and putting it on the, the altar for them. We know that they are not gonna they're not here to eat it or to drink the rum or to or to drink the water or to use the candle to walk around in the room. <laughs> but these are symbolic ways of activating energy. And once you activate that energy, then what happens is you begin to see phenomena occur because energy creates movement. And so once you you activate a powerful energy like an ancestral um, spiritual energy um, and you are um, paying homage to that individual and giving them the acknowledgement that they deserve, they they can't help but do anything but help you. But if you're afraid, uh, you think that there's something wrong with that because that's what you've been taught and have come to believe, then you... Um, might attribute your results to something else. And it doesn't mean that it's not a part of that, too. But I'm talking about ancestors right now. Hmm. Okay, so the different workshops. But what made you feel deep inside this is where you had to go? Well, um, one of the things that solidified it for me was having spiritual readings. And um, when you have spiritual readings, um, divination systems are used. And uh, the Ifa divination system is one. I mean, you can have native, uh, what people call native uh, First Nation um, shamans and shamans to do readings for you. But those those readings give you information about why you're here, um, what you're supposed to do while you're here, and what you need to do in order to get your life in, on track so that you can do what you came here and what you should be doing while you're here. And if you believe that, as I do, and I believe it strongly because I have so much proof that it's true, then you do what you need to do and you develop what you need to develop because we all have something to offer. We didn't come to this planet just to take up space and breathe mm-hmm. air. We <laughs> we have something to do. And um, supporting people in their healing is one of the things I do, and I was gifted with the ability to write. I write well and I speak well. And um, so supporting people in their wellness um, I'm able to do using those techniques. Um, 
I've created ritual grief rituals in combination with grief rituals I learned about from other cultures because I am an African, a black African-American woman. So there are very powerful uh, tools that I have in my own culture that I will not discount that are also based on African and traditional uh, spiritualities and, and, and thought and cosmological thought systems. So I just um, didn't use uh, just what I was taught in school and the systems that I grew up in as a way to determine what my life was going to look like professionally. I know now that I have a spiritual calling and um, there's work that I have to do and I'm doing my work. Help us to understand about the approaches you use. Mm, what What do you mean, the approach? Because you use you, you're going to talk to us about the approaches you use to better ensure self healing and wellness in our community. So, can you tell us about a couple? You know, what is it? Some of the things that you do, some of the things that you talk about. I mean, I know you do the grief um, workshops, but what other things do you do within the community, especially when the community is not ready for some of the stuff that you do? Well, I I still have a private practice. I still do workshops and seminars. Um, I do women's retreats. Um, so that's the format that I work with, retreats, workshops, seminars, uh, individual and group counseling. And um, I train. I do organizational training. And um, I do speaking engagements. And the people that hire me... Um, for example, hire me because they are interested in me bringing my medicine to the table. And what I'm bringing to the table is generally not what's what people normally get. And um, so most of my work will be, you'll see me at conferences and um, organizations will hire me to come in and do cultural competency training with their staff. And within the context of that, I introduce, um, you know, Africa-centric models. And so even though I'm trained and licensed as a clinician, I don't just adhere to a Western model for wellness and health. Uh, One of the things that concerns me is the depression rate in our community, Mm. Uh, the suicide rate in my community, and the mm-hmm. very unhealthy relationships that some of us stay in, that bothers me a great deal. So re- doing relationship work is something I'm known for, and I incorporate the things we've talked about tonight into that work, and it works. It's not necessarily work that everybody wants to engage in. It's not necessarily work that everybody believes in. Um, people have the right to believe what they choose, uh, or not, um, but whether they do or not, that doesn't stop me from moving forward, doing what you know I think that I need to be doing. And, and you um, know that mm-hmm. you mentioned how, and, and you know, and you and you did mention it. I mean, and you're and you're bringing people to a place. And I know that I'm sure that there's some people who are here and they and they come to you, but 
they've probably they've had years of this indoctrination into this Western culture, into this uh-huh. this warped sort of Christianity that has sort of like changed how they're thinking about it. And when they come to you and and you know they're doing it, how do you help them? You know, sort of like okay. I need to put that aside. I know I need to put it aside, but I've been raised in this. And like when you're talking about your relationship with, with your mother, and you're like, well, mama was in the church, so how do you get them to go, okay, let's talk about these other things and, and, and open their minds? How do you get them to make that sort of shift? Because they're almost there when they come to you. So how do you help them cross that bridge? Well, what usually happens in my case is people don't come to me unless they have gotten reached the end of their rope. They mm-hmm. try. They go to church every Sunday. They go to prayer uh-huh. meetings. You know, they they are members of the BTU boards. Um, they are ministers themselves. You have no idea how many ministers I work with. Um, mm. But they've everything they've tried has not worked. So they come to me very often as a last resort, and people come to me because sometimes it's the first time they've heard what I'm talking about, and it resonated with them because there's something deep inside our DNA. There's truth in there, and when truth hears mm-hmm. truth, truth recognizes truth. Even mm-hmm. though it might be scary to move forward, there's something inside you that lets you know that there's there's some truth in this. And all I ask people to do is to love themselves enough to try something different because feeling better mm-hmm. feels better. So if you want to continue mm-hmm. to stay stuck in that belief system, if that's working for you, I would never suggest that a person give up something that's working to try to get into something that they don't know anything about and they're not sure that it will work. Mm-hmm. But there are enough people out there that have taken my workshops that have experienced me to inform people about what the work is about what I'm about, and how they were helped by being involved in the work I do. But um, And there are people that will never change their mind. They mm-hmm. have been taught to believe what they have been taught to believe, and they have come to accept it as truth. And my job is not to try to convince people that what they choose to believe is um that they should not believe that. I, my, what I do is I give people some information and I function as a resource that they can access if they're interested in getting more information. I function as a resource that they can access if they're interested in utilizing the the medicine that I bring to the table, uh, the tools that I have that I will share with them uh, to make a a difference in their lives. And I have never worked with anyone yet whose lives weren't changed when they did this work the way I the way I do it. I mean, and changed for the better. That's why I've almost never ever advertised. This mm-hmm. uh, you know this this whole social media thing is new for me. <laughs> I never had to use it because everything was word of mouth, and I had as many clients as I could handle, and I would refer people out if I wasn't able to see them myself. I would refer them to clinicians that, whose work I respected. Um, so people have to decide for themselves um, the truth about their being. And if they are very happy and they know how to take care of the, their needs um, 
and they don't need anything I bring to the table. That's wonderful. I'd like to know that. And then there are people that have tried things and it ha- they don't have haven't gotten the results they want, and they're courageous enough and willing to try something different. And what I'm offering is not very different from what they would get from uh, a Christian counselor, for example, because one thing I do in my work is I explain to people the connection between African spirituality and Christianity. Most people have not a clue that when they're sitting in church every Sunday and going through their the rituals of Christianity that is based on African spirituality. So when mm-hmm. they're in the choir singing and they're doing uh, call and response in, in their spirituals and in their praise work, uh, praise music, they don't know that that comes out of Africa, particularly in, in South Africa. You get the call and response. It's beautiful. Um, when they When it comes to praise dancing, they don't know that that comes straight out of Africa and it's a part of the process that people go through when they are... Uh, when they're dealing with spirit possession. So in the church, when the Holy Spirit possesses you and you go into your praise dance, that's no different than if you're out in the village around a fire and the Spirit possesses you and you go into a praise dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to uh, tambourines and, and drums and all of those things in the church, where the, we made those instruments. So when we were enslaved, we brought the memory of those things with us. And when we were introduced to and forced to accept Christianity or die, um, we were able to bring those images and those symbols that we were familiar with that were part of African spirituality and incorporated them right on into the Christian church, particularly in the Catholic faith. So um, I help people understand how when they, for example, when Easter comes and you're going to get the ashes put on your forehead and you're going to um, drink the blood of Christ and, and the crackers represent his body, well, you're talking really about human sacrifice, really. And typically in African culture, human sacrifice was not something that happened. But when you talk about um, God giving his only son, you know, so that we could get rid of our sins and we could have everlasting life. You're talking about him sacrificing his son. So when the people that are call themselves Christians, you know, have this conversation about sacrificing and, and voodoo, the average person doesn't know what the word voodoo means. It simply means spirit of the gods. So what's wrong with spirit of God? I mean, I don't understand. But when you have been miseducated um, and and you've been taught to be afraid, then you're easily controlled. And you are not going to do anything about your circumstance to a certain extent because you're going to be taught to love your enemies as yourself. And you can, but it still doesn't mean that you have to tolerate uh, certain behaviors and that you have to give up what's intrinsically um, natural to you. So I guess I'm back with Michelle when she asked about, you know, things that are embedded in you. Um and then you and you ask people to step out to kinda of do things different if it's right for them. You know, and I understand you say you don't push anybody to do anything that they don't feel they can do or it's right for them. What does that look like in the family dynamics though? I mean, I know the dynamics of the the mother and the daughter, but 
when you put that together with other siblings, um, how does that how does that play? Well, you are you asking me that when an individual, for example, comes to me for counseling, or they attend one of my uh, reef rituals or uh, a retreat, and they learn new information. Are you saying asking that the question that when they then interact with their family members, how does that work? Is is that the question? Kind of like that because I mean I know probably when they leave they 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 have a different view and opinion of the relationship with them and their mother because they they get to feel things they get to hear things they get to realize oh that's why that's happening. But what about when you bring another daughter into to, into to the fold or you bring a son into the fold? With the relationship between the, the the woman that came to you and the mother, are you talking about the birth mother and mm-hmm. and birth her mother. lover or her partner? Nope. Or are you nope. talking birth about an individual who's in a relationship with another woman, and she also is in 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 counseling, or she's come to an event and she's learned something about her relationship with her mother? And she now wants to talk to her mom about it. Is that what you're suggesting? Talk to the mom or about she it. To... Talk to the lover about it. Talk to the sister because the sister is also involved in this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. don't you have to kind of see all of the um, how all the relationships work or how they all entwine? Well, that is something that usually would happen if someone's in counseling or in therapy because that's a long-term process if you're going to bring all the family mm-hmm. members into it. But if you come to, let's say, uh, a three-day retreat. With me, you're going to get a lot of exercises, a lot of information, uh, a lot of a lot of um, experiences that are designed for you to access uh, memories and revisit experiences and incidents that impacted you early on, and. Out of that, what I do is I help the individual make the connection between the past and their here and now. And the, once the individual will see for themselves the connection, they most assuredly are going to talk about it. Now, there's an interesting dynamic when people are doing healing work, and any clinician will tell you this. When people come into therapy, for example, and they begin to learn something about what they're there for. They begin to learn something about themselves, and they begin to make decisions about what they will and will not continue to do, particularly people that are in uh, recovery for substance abuse or uh, alcoholism, for example. There comes a time when you are going to behave differently than you used to. And it's very normal, and it's clearly a family dynamic, that when one member of the family begins to change behavior and do things differently, the entire family system gets involved in trying to pull you back into behaving the way you used to because that's what they know. That's what they know. They don't know how to relate to this new person. And very often people that are not strong enough to resist that end up relapsing or they will stick to their program, utilize their sponsors, utilize their um, other members in, in their in their group, and 
have the support of a, another family because sometimes we have to create new families. Sometimes our families are so toxic that the time it takes us to that it takes time, if ever, for people to come around. But in the meantime, it's just like when you're in a plane and they tell you, you know, if there's an, an <laughs> the plane's going down, um, you take that oxygen mask and you put it on your nose first, and then you can put it on your baby. Because if you pass mm-hmm. out, who's going to take care of the baby? So when That's you're true. doing healing work, you have to take care of yourself first because you can't help anybody until you help yourself. So sometimes it means being able to have the support of your newfound family, your therapist or whomever, your coach or whatever, having the support of them to sustain you while you're going through the healing work because your family might be very rejecting. Your family could include your church, uh, your biological family, your work friends, just a cornucopia of people. But sometimes we have to step away from all of it in order to heal. And some of us do and some of us don't. Well, I'm, I'm also hearing, too, that you're saying, like, like sometimes you've got to get healthy. You've got to understand what's going wrong and, and why, you know, it's affecting your relationships and everything, and that it's not going to be easy. Like I said, the whole family isn't going to jump on board, but the thing is to stay true to I've got to get healthy. And so to hold that course. Yep. You you certainly have it. That's that's just the way it has to be. And um, first of all, you know, because of what happened to us as a result of slavery, as a group, we have a very, very, very poor self-concept. We have, we don't really see ourselves in, in healthy ways. And, so it makes it difficult for us to see ourselves as deserving of wellness. Um, we very often have been taught to feel guilty about not pleasing people like our mothers, particularly our mothers. Mm-hmm. Oh man, if you you ain't pleasing your mother, you're not. Because interestingly, in in same gender loving relationships with women, for example. Um, historically, it's women who take care of their mothers when they get old. It's us that take care of our sisters and brothers' kids because very often they say, well, you don't have any children, and, you know, they think that mm-hmm. we can afford, um, <laughs> yep. you know, what what the husband is not helping you take care of. You, you know, the, the sisters that are same gender-loving and brothers are the ones that are sending kids to school, you know, taking care of their old mothers and fathers when the rest of the family, you know, they they don't they're not doing it for whatever the reasons mm-hmm. are. And um if you're women like we are, we've already been socialized to take care of other people before we take care of ourselves. So it's hard for us sometimes to step away from that that paradigm when it comes to needing to do our healing work and say, "Listen, I've got to do this for me." And it's it's it might seem selfish, and there's nothing wrong with being selfish if your life is at stake. Mm-hmm. And some of us, like myself, I see me as fighting for my life. And I have, um, ostensibly, if I live to be 100, I have 
26 more years. Do you think I'm going to waste it being unhappy or miserable or just worrying about pleasing somebody because they're not going to be happy with me and might not like me or might see me as being not a good daughter or a good whatever? Because people's opinions are based on their own needs and their own filters, um, their own information. So a lot of times people have these faulty presumptions because they don't know any better. And sometimes you can't wait for them to learn if you want to heal and stay alive and stay healthy. <laughs> and it sounds it might sound um, distant and cold to some people to hear me say these things, but I have learned over time that um, the truth is what it is. It is what it is. You, I don't care how you try to change it into something it's not. It, things just are what they are. And more often than not, people um, give meaning to, th- to incidents and situations, and that meaning is based on their filters and their reality, and it has nothing to do with the truth which is what I help people understand when I'm working with them, that whatever happened with you and to you is what happened with you and to you. It doesn't mean that your definition of it and your interpretation of it is true. And that's that's the crux of the work I do, helping people look at core issues and define their core identity. Um, <clears throat> because we've created all these stories, and we live out of these stories. Yeah. Uh, when you when you talk about mothers and daughters and you look at things because I mean I have recognized that sometimes the the parenting or the nurturing can vary depending on culture. Like if you have someone who is from a uh, Afro Latina culture with someone who is just plain old, you know, from Louisiana, there's going to be differencing in the ways of that. So as you try to help people understand how that does in a couple, sometimes you have to say to them, you know, you have to let go of part of your culture or some of your expectations because of that culture, you know, because you're not in the Dominican Republic anymore. You're not in Louisiana anymore. The women that you're dating are from a different reality than yours. Well, I don't know if I would say to a person that they need to get rid of any part of their culture because Mm -hmm. culture serves a very useful purpose. But what I would ask them to do is examine if the way they do things is working for them. And if it's working for you, keep doing it. Mm -hmm. If it's not working for you, then you might want to look at doing it differently. And we have to also recognize that all of these cultures that are diasporan cultures have been impacted by imperialism, Mm -hmm. white supremacy, and slavery. So just because your culture is of whatever it is, it doesn't mean that some of the stuff about that you that comes with it is healthy. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. So. When you went to Africa and you started, you know, to listen to the stories, um, learn about the relationships between the mothers and the daughters, um, 
when was your aha moment for you? Well, first of all, the relationship that indigenous African women have with their daughters is quite different from the one we have with our daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the because of the culture and mm-hmm. because of the the um how can I put it? Kinship and bloodlines mean everything in Africa and in other mm-hmm. cultures too. And tradition basically reigns supreme. So I did not approach my conversations and my working with African women from the perspective of someone that knew that knew and that, that um who's who came from a system that was better than or more advanced than. I tried very hard to understand their understanding of of, of what um their cultures brought about. For example, when I talk to women about female, what we call genital mutilation, mm-hmm. well, that might be how we see it based on the way our culture informs us. But if you live in the Serengeti, for example, and you're a pastoral people, and all you do is deal, the men deal with the cows and the women deal with gathering and, and hunting and taking care of what's back in the village. Um, when it comes to what is acceptable and not acceptable culturally, it's not in some cultures acceptable for girls to have a clitoris. She's considered unclean and it's considered ugly. Um, it's not um, necessarily common for males to be circumcised. Um, so when we look at Western culture, we can't imagine why anyone would want their daughter to be, to have her clitoris removed and her labia sewn together. But in their culture, girls would never get married if they didn't have these surgeries. Men would not want them. They would be shunned. So the social pressure even when mothers don't necessarily agree or want their daughters to have the, 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 the circumcisions, they go along with it because the social pressure is so strong that the, and they are so dependent generally on their men just for basic survival, they tend to go along with the status quo. And um, that's just the way it is. And cultures, mm-hmm. uh, we we come from a society that is so different that most cultures look at us as though we're crazy. They just can't even imagine some of the stuff we do, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and the way and our ways of being. They just can't imagine it. They don't understand how that is because it's not a reality mm-hmm. in their culture. So I I always try to have cultural humility mm-hmm. and recognize that. My worldview has been inextricably tied to the worldview of my oppressors. And no matter how hard I try, I still have a Western mind. I still speak a Western language. And language is a very powerful thing. So um, it makes it important for us 
to really study other people's cultures and mm-hmm. to be open-minded about the reality that we don't come from a perfect society and because something makes sense to us, it's making sense to us within the context of our cultural experience. So it makes sense to us not to remove a girl's clitoris because we want her to enjoy having orgasms. But in a culture where it's not important or common for women to have orgasms, what's important is for her to have healthy babies, and lots of them. She's going to feel very proud that um, she has 8 or 10 or 12 children. The average average American woman is not going to want 8 or 10 or 12 children because she doesn't live in a society where she can take care of them. But if you're living in a village or in a in a communal society where everybody's involved in taking care of everybody, then you're not going to have that type of problem. You know, isn't it also? I mean, because when often when I when I talk to people about you know, that we're, we're part of this huge diaspora. There's all of it, and then when you see that we are we forget sometimes that often at risk of death that we were told you know to deny the beauty of our motherland and of our customs. And so sometimes we're still, we still have that internalized hatred of self. Yes, That we immediately, exactly. the first thing we think about that culture is like, oh, they're backwards. They're not going to say, wait a minute, who told you, you know, that that's backwards and that, and, and to say, like, how do you repack that and put it up on the shelf and go back into it like open-minded you know, or recognize when it's some of your biases that are part of racism, you know. And, and that often I find is, is you find that, that that is part that you have to go on when you're talking to people to get them to like, okay, we're going to talk about an indigenous going back to the motherland, to our spirituality and doing it. No, put put what you've learned up on the shelf and realize where that came from, where those negative thoughts are. That That's part of it, it's true. And it's also true that I tell people that it's important not to glamorize Africa. Because sometimes mm. because of our, our experience of having been just ripped from the motherland, we have a tendency when we become so-called conscious to really glamorize Africa. And we don't want to look at the fact that there are some things that go on in that those cultures that are not healthy. Um, so I think it's important for people to understand that what you believe is what you've been taught to believe. It doesn't mean that it's right, wrong, good, bad, or indifferent. You just, you've just you been taught to believe that, and you've dis, you have come to believe it. It doesn't mean it's true. Truth is only about the agreement of more than one person. That makes it true. Mm-hmm. So if I believe something and you believe it, no, nah, it's true. Someone who comes along and doesn't believe it, so now they say it's not true. But um, I, I think we as as Americans and we as Caribbean people um, see do see ourselves in somewhat of an elitist way when it comes to our people coming from other places, and we kind of some kind how see ourselves as the um, the 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 wealthy relation and them as the poor relation, like the country mouse mm. and the church mouse. 
Huh. And uh, we've been taught to see it that way. And we have to do a lot of personal work to get rid of some of those stories that we run in our heads all the time. Because they're put there for a reason. And for those of us that have not had, you know, really good political educational experiences in school or have not been able to study on our own um, and learn some new information, we're kind of stuck with what we've been taught by one group of people. And it's reinforced by religion, by the penal justice system, the criminal justice system, um, Mm -hmm. educational system, health care system, the social systems. All of these systems were designed by the people that stole us and brutalized us. And these systems are designed for the purpose of maintaining power and control and keeping it in the hands of certain people. They're designed in a way to have certain people that are going to always be workers and consumers, and then there'll be other people that will be owners and in charge. So um, when we look at ourselves as a people and we see that we're a consumer nation, for people that know what that means, that inf- that should inform them um, mm-hmm. to the point that they realize there's something about the way I'm thinking that's impacting the way I'm behaving. And the way I'm behaving and the attitude that goes along with my thinking and the way I'm feeling uh, is producing these results. So when we look at ourselves as a group of people and look at the results, we're not unified as a people, and as women, we are not. We don't really have a viable working women's community. Now, I'm not saying we don't have women's community. I'm not saying that there are not women in the community who are doing viable, wonderful work. But I'm talking about us as a group. Mm-hmm. For example, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the case here in New York where a young black man was shot to death in the stairwell of his building Uh by an Asian police officer who was found guilty of murder. However, he's not doing any time because even though his people are certainly fewer than we are in this society, they were powerful enough because they came together as a community and put mm-hmm. pressure on the politicians such that his he walked away having killed, and it was proven he did it, but he's not serving the type of time your son or my brother mm-hmm. would have to if we had shot and killed a white boy. So, But where was the upcry, uproar and the outcry in our community as a group? These people got together in New York City and were able to come together around one thing, and that is that he shouldn't do any time, and he didn't do any. And there are more of us than there are them. So what is Uh it that, why is it that we are in the situation we're in with our children being slaughtered in the street every day? And what do we do about it as a group? Nothing. Because it's just like it was on the plantation when one of us 
exerted any sense of individuality. It was quickly snuffed out in front of all of the other enslaved Africans to teach them a lesson. So we have in our deep in our DNA the fear of upheaval and, and rising up. We have the fear that's in our DNA. We are afraid to fight for each other and support each other. We still operate as though three or four people on a plantation could control thousands of us, and they did. And that's what's happening today because there's something wrong with our thinking. And we are still trying to operate out of a a paradigm and a system that was designed to keep us oppressed. Mm -hmm. There are those of us that know that, so we go ahead to study and learn about our culture, and we take from it the things that are best to take from it, and we leave the rest behind. I believe in the whole concept of Sankofa, you know, that bird that the Akan Mm -hmm. people have in Ghana, and it's got its head turned around backward, and there's getting there's an egg on its back. I love that um because it represents symbolically us looking backward into our culture and taking from that information and situations and rituals that bring about new birth and new life because the egg represents new birth and new life. Um you can't continue to uh, to drink from a polluted pond and think you're going to have fresh water. You just can't. That's what I have to say about that. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) (laughs) And don't you you ever give it up. Because I mean it's on so many levels when you stop and you see even like when you were talking earlier about how we're consumers and it doesn't Mm -hmm. register to us that by us being so quick to be consumers and not owning anything it keeps us in that Slave mentality, you know, it's like, you know. And dependent. And, and you see people who think, oh, well, we've made it because I can go and buy X, Y, and Z, but you have nothing. It's pathetic. Yeah. And, and what's so mm-hmm. pathetic about it is there was a, I saw something on Facebook today, and someone had made a comment about, um, we were talking about hair, which is, is a thing that I have about us and this hair. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <laughs> We, I talked about the fact that generally people don't wear things and behave in ways that they think are going to make them look worse. We generally behave in ways and wear things that we think make us look better. So when we buy uh, dead people's hair, for example, mm-hmm. uh, we get it from Indian people, East Indians, or um, it could be disease, people that have diseases, uh, because what's happening now is a phenomenon that we see where doctors are getting worms out of the heads of yeah. black women who have weaves because yeah. they're wearing they're wearing what they consider to be human hair, and it human hair when it's on the head of dead people it it forms um like bacteria as well as these these organisms. And so you, they sew it in their head, and the next thing you know, they're tapping, tapping, tapping on their head with pencils and everything trying to scratch. And what they're not realizing is a lot of them have uh, all kind of things growing under their skin uh, from uh-huh. this hair. 
And the people that we're buying it from don't respect us. We're impoverished. There was a, a thing where all of these hundreds of black women were standing in a line from 4 o'clock in the morning to buy this hair. Some store opened up mm-hmm. here in New York City. And you should have, it was just unbelievable. It was the most sad thing I've ever seen. All these black women waiting to buy this phony hair. For 4 o'clock in the morning, standing in a line to, until this store opened, a new store opened. Of course, it's not owned by anybody black. Mm-hmm. So our values are so misplaced. And it takes three generations for our culture to change. So that's 75 years. Things are not going to change in my lifetime at the level we're talking about. But I love having conversations with younger people like you all because you can do something that I'm not going to be here long enough to do a whole lot more than I have done. But the more information you gain, the more you can share. And... um, but we have to decide what do we want to be, you know, we want to still be dependent consumers or do we want to be entrepreneurs and, and own ourselves and I get tired just talking about it sometimes. Because <laughs> I've been talking about it for fifty some years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's a necessary well, conversation. Yeah, it definitely Well Bonnie Let's go back to one conversation we kind of briefly went over earlier, and that was the relationship, the same-sex relationship, where you said there sometimes become a power struggle between um, the two based on maybe the relationship between the mothers or um, just because. And then, like you said, some have maybe a little bit more um, maleness in them than the other. Mm-hmm. I guess, I guess then I, I, my question would be: Can the one that has more of the male uh, t- traits and tendencies, where do they, or how do they um, get back to that? Or can they have the same type of uh, aha with the mother relationship as, and I'm gonna say like stud in the film, the film had with her mother? Well, first of all, your mother is going to relate to you as her daughter. I don't care what you wear and how much masculine Mm -hmm. you have, Mm -hmm. how much you might call yourself, you know, um, left of center. You can call yourself anything you'd like, but your mama, you're her daughter. And she'll either feel comfortable or not with the way you dress and the way you show up in the world for a lot of reasons. So it doesn't matter whether you operate out of a strong masculine or a strong feminine. Your mm-hmm. relationship with your mother is one that you could benefit from if it's if it's healthy and if it's repaired. If you are living a, a life and you show up in your being as someone that she doesn't approve of, well, that has impacted you in a very strong way. And that is going to have a lot to do with how you're going to relate to your partner in your relationship, whether you realize it or not. So there are also that's also real that some relationships with our mothers cannot be repaired with them. We have to repair them in our own minds and in our own ways. Some parents are dead, which doesn't stop us mm-hmm. from doing the grief work with them. But that's what grief rituals are for. You might not be able to 
repair or to heal the broken relationship you have, for example, with your mother. But you certainly can go to a grief ritual and grieve the loss of the mother that you wanted and didn't have or the loss of the mother that was non-accepting. Grief work brings about healing because the the grief work entails forgiveness. And the first thing we have to do is forgive ourselves because you can't forgive anybody else until you forgive yourself. So and that's the process. So people say, well, I've forgiven them. You know, so-and-so happened to me when I was a child, and, you know, my mother wasn't there for me, but I forgave her. Well, I I would question, how did you go about doing that? Because (laughs) forgiveness is not about making a decision, okay, I'm forgiving you. We talked about it, and now it's over and it's behind us. No, it's not. It's not. It's just like taking the skin off. Sorry. You know, because, like, sometimes I understand, I understand, because, like, sometimes I've told people, like, some things, you know, like, like that forgiveness, because sometimes you you reach that point to rec- you recognize, you know what, they did the best they could with what they had. And, you know, right. and so you can forgive them. You just can't go, oh, I forgive them. You know, well, well, why did this happen? And then you reach that point where it's like, you know what, she was doing the best she could with what she had. So I gotta let that go, you know. Like I'm mad at it no more. You know, I forgive that, and then you can move on. But you, you have to like really look at that whole situation, and not, you can't just go like, oh well, I forgive her. You know, I'm yeah. It's deeper than that. It's yeah. much deeper than that, and and what you have to also understand is that when you recognize that she did the best she could, that's intellectual. That's an intellectual process, which has nothing to do with how you feel as a little mm-hmm. person that was wounded by her, by something she said or didn't say, something she did or didn't do. Um, those wounds are still there. And intellectually, that's part of the problem. We can resolve stuff on an intellectual level, but we don't resolve it on an emotional and spiritual level. And so we think that the words that we say make it so, when it's the work that we do that makes it so. Mm-hmm. For example, if you were to come to one of my grief rituals, um, you would discover that um, there are three different altars. One has to, one is a forgiveness altar, and that's one the first place you go, because you now have to forgive yourself for all the stuff that you did that helped maintain the unhealthy relationship or all the stuff that you did to yourself as a result of the unhealthy relationship. We've got to do forgiveness work with yourself first. And um, when you get to that altar, the grief altar, and you start crying about and lamenting and telling that person what it is you need for them to know, that's when you're grieving intentionally and wholly. Crying is a piece of, of, of grieving, Talking to somebody is a part of it, but it's an ongoing process. It's not something that starts, that happened, and now we've had this conversation. That we had a, a weekend of, of, of went to a, a thing with my mother, and we went to a weekend retreat, and now everything is cool with us. Well, for now, and on the first level of that onion skin, everything is fine. But onions, you know how much skin an onion has? You just keep 
pulling back layer <laughs> after layer after layer after layer because we are whole people. And these harms and these hurts and these losses that we experience, we experience them as little people. And we just grew on top of all that stuff and we became big people. But that wounded child is still in there. And we have to grieve her. We have to grieve. We have so many losses. So many have, losses. Have you, have you ever had, like, a, a mother and daughter there with you together at the same time, you know, where, where they both oh. are at that point and they come together to the work, to your to a session, you know, because I can time. see where, you know, the, I was reading how you're saying, like, you know, how each relate uh, generation where maybe the the daughter is grieving something that's happening and her mother's there, but it goes back to, like, another generation to where maybe, like, what happened with the grandmother, that they all have to do that. Do you ever have you had to do that? Well, I work with mothers and daughters all the time, um, mm-hmm. and that's a beautiful thing to see when mothers and daughters show up in one of my grief rituals or in a retreat, um, because mm-hmm. I love doing these retreats as well. Because each time I do this stuff, I get a healing too. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, my investment is selfish. I, I want to heal, so <laughs> I'll do them as often as I can, <laughs> any chance I get. You know. But um, doing generational work, I've had mothers, and daughters and grandmothers. Mm, wow. I've had mothers and sons. That is a powerful thing to see. And oh, wow. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've had grandparents with their grandchildren because they are there trying to save the kids because the parents are somewhere being crazy. Mm-hmm. I weren't interested in coming to do the work, so they bring the grandkids. Um but it's it's it and it it, it works. That's, I don't I, I don't know um, how to stress enough the fact that something that seems so simple is so powerful. But sometimes um, what's required, and I think what impacts people's healing too, is our slavery experience created a deep-seated sense of shame in us. And one of the things that keeps us from healing is the shame. Mm-hmm. We don't want to cry in front of people. We don't want people to know our business. It's nobody's business. Uh, you know, we have all those stories we tell. Whatever happens because what it does is it covers up how ashamed you know? we feel. You know, we feel very ashamed. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people go to their graves sick. And what sadly happens, if you have these issues and they're not resolved, they do what we call, they somaticize, they become physical and emotional. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, a lot of the stuff that we're experiencing physically, it's because of unhealed emotional issues. Mm-hmm. Hypertension, good example. Strokes, stress, and emotions that are not examined and issues that are not healed, those emotions become toxic. And so you know what happens if you have something toxic in your system. Mm-hmm. It pollutes everything. It pollutes the entire system. So uh, okay. it's just, what can I say? <laughs> I think you said a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot to the story. Um, there's a lot of work that has to be done. And the work that you all do, uh, just getting the word out and making it possible for people to have 
varying opinions and very to learn new techniques and it's it's important and necessary work that you do. So um, people like myself, would, where would we be if we didn't have people like you? Mm-hmm. So you need well, to I mean, really acknowledge the importance of your work too. I can imagine <laughs> how much love is there in that. I mean, I can imagine, you know, when you see that family coming, you know, these generations, I mean, that's a lot of love because, like you said, you're letting go of something that's that's really hard, but you love and you want love, but you're prepared to go and deal with these things and to face it. And, I mean, I can just imagine, I mean, just when you were talking about the generations with the son, I mean, you know, I was just like, wow. I mean, I had I had a moment. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. how how powerful that must be to witness that and to to see this transformation. But it's based on this love and and the hurt. It's like we don't want to hurt anymore, and we want to fix this. And exactly, you know, that's that's just wow. Yeah, I I think the one of the most powerful um, experiences I've ever had was when I saw this dynamic happen with my own family. With uh you know, three generations of us being in the same room doing the work and to see the result and, and, and the power of reconciliation that comes from forgiveness and, and owning responsibility for behaviors that were hurtful. Um, to see a mother and daughter be able to come to some reconciliation and for it to be members of my own family watching that happen and I'm facilitating it's a powerful place to be in and it's a it's mm-hmm. um, it's an honor because when you come out of a family system that's dysfunctional your sisters and brothers grew up in it just like you did but they all have different experiences and interpretations of the experience but one thing for sure if you come up if you grow up in a dysfunctional household everybody's going to be dysfunctional everybody mama daddy brother sister baby grandbaby everybody because everyone is affected by the behavior of everybody in the household. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 uncanny because it's almost as though those individuals form a pact and the pact is to keep the sickness going. Um so when one person decides they want to get well and break away from that, they get a lot of rejection from family members and sometimes the the dysfunction escalates. And that's what scares people, and they decide that they step away because things get worse. It's just like having a boil. You know, before it bursts, it hurts real bad. (laughs) Um, And that's the way healing is. You know, before the healing takes place, you have to feel the full effect of that pain. And that means you've got to remember and revisit the experiences, which is what most people want to avoid. They don't want to go back there. They don't know that there's there's no way you can avoid experiencing legitimate suffering. Some suffering is legitimate. No. You should be in pain. Why wouldn't you be in pain with some of the things that we've experienced as, as people? But what we've done is we've done what victims do. We've assumed responsibility for what the victimizer did to us, so we end up feeling ashamed of the experience as though we did something wrong. No. So we want to, We don't want to deal with it. We'll leave it alone. I don't want to deal with it. You know, let sleeping dogs lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, why you want to bring that up? Or, you know, yeah. What's over that was a thousand it. years uh-huh. ago. Everything is fine now. It's not like that uh-huh. now. No, everything isn't fine. Pretending is not okay. Unless you're playing a game and your kids. <laughs> wow. So that's and pretending that's can be anything. Pretending can be with you and your family, you and your partner, you and your mother. It can even be with you and yourself, right? Yes, because we create stories. Um, I'm going to make sure you all get some information when I do this next grief ritual because maybe you could find a, a way to come. It's going to be the next one. It's not going to be until April because I'm doing some other stuff too, but... Um, I wish you could come to one. If not, maybe I can come to Chicago and do one there with uh, a group. Well, we take uh, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's really powerful because, you know, it's funny how you don't think about things because, you know, and then you think about, like you said, little things. I was talking to somebody um, the other day about about hair, and I was talking about, you know, and how wanting not only like the, the 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 hatred that we had for each other, but then being that first one to where because you know they just couldn't get my hair hair together, but and my mother went and let me had me go and get my hair done, and how I remember like and how it hurt and everything, and you know the first time it got pressed it hurt I was burned, but there was also that part that there was something wrong. And so I was prepared to go and do that. But I said, and then to, to think later on, why would she make her little girl do go through all of that? And then to go <laughs> through like, oh, there's that self-hatred. And like you said, you pass it on. If you don't deal with it, you pass it on to where it takes a while before you, you recognize just what exactly is happening, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's a, a wonderful piece of insight you have there. And again, shame is attached to that because when you grew up on a plantation and you were taught that your way of being was heathenistic and it was ugly and wrong, and what was beautiful was long, I call it the Rapunzel syndrome that a lot of our women have. Mm-hmm. They want this long hair like Rapunzel. And then we got a nerve that we want blonde hair too. I mean, <laughs> and that's that, you don't get blonde hair unless you have a recessive gene. And uh, who wants who wants recessive genes? There's something wrong with that picture. Now I'm not talking about it. There are Africans that have uh, blonde hair and uh-huh. green eyes and blue eyes, but that's not from miscegenation. So who's going to first of all want to feel good about the fact that the women in their family were raped, and that's how they got to look like that? Or uh-huh. I want to look like the women who belong to the rapists. So their daughters were valuable and valued, and I wasn't. So if I look more like her, then you're going to find me more beautiful and more valued. That's mm-hmm. the mistaken idea. And if mm-hmm. you have a, if you've accepted that the model for beauty is um, looks like, looks like someone other than you then you're not going to be happy looking like you. or You're not going to be happy looking like anybody that looks like you. Huh. And then if your men and the women in your in your group find you more attractive when you look like the oppressor's daughter, then 
it validates for you and it reinforces that the way you look naturally is not good enough. And so mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of shame that goes along with being the dark-skinned one with the shorter hair and the, the nappy hair than to be the lighter-skinned one with the longer hair, the good hair. Uh, there's shame. So how do we get rid of shame when it comes to hair? We straighten it and we put on some more. Uh-huh. Or we color it. For example, my hair is absolutely gray. I love it. Um, but I had a partner once that uh, told me she wanted me to color my hair. And I recognize that, number one, she hair, gray hair represents age. So this is somebody that's going to have problems with the, with aging. Um, and who didn't feel comfortable because I don't look like I'm my age. So, But the gray hair makes people think that I'm as old as I am, or, or, but older. I mean, young people typically don't have gray hair. Mine came in at 13. All the girls in my family, when they're 13, they have gotten a gray mm-hmm. streak. So I've always yeah. had gray hair, and I love it. Um, so it wasn't hard for me when I stopped straightening my hair back in uh, the 60s. Yeah. Um, I used to get terrible comments made by black men when I would walk down the street, and they would whistle or make these disparaging comments. And if I would not respond, they would tell me that, um, go ahead with your black, ugly self. I don't like nappy-haired black women anyway. (laughs) So um, there are a lot of things that reinforce in our our culture um, that we should look different that we should look like mm-hmm. women other than black women do. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then when you find little girls, this is what breaks my heart, our little girls in in strollers mm-hmm. and who are um, on their mother's hip have braids sewn in their head. Mm-hmm. They have alopecia by the time they're seven because all mm-hmm. the hair has been pulled out of the side of their head and this is not just here. I mean, all over Africa, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so sad. Um, but these little girls have been early on taught that they are not pretty within their natural hair. And the hair is never going to get a chance to grow and be any longer because it's being snatched out all the time with these weaves and stuff. And then they put these big old beads in it. And you see the yeah. little girls just flapping their heads back and forth and uh-huh. back and forth so their hair can swing and swing in the wind and they can feel beautiful like little white girls whose hair swings in the wind. That breaks my heart. Well, I will tell you, I don't let everybody touch my hair, but I let a little child, a little black girl, touch my hair. And we'll talk about, you know, I had a little girl saying, yeah. oh, your hair is big. And I said, you know, yeah, you know. Yeah, but you know, and and like you said, it just breaks your heart when you see this. Yes. Mhm. Because I don't see little white girls running around uh, crying and wanting their mothers to give them cornrows and and to give them <laughs> afro puffs and no, and I don't see white mothers who are running around trying to get that done to their children's head. And that's I was offended when um, Kim Kardashian put what they call designer braids. Oh, in that little uh, that little black child's head, uh-huh. uh, and she had on some, but that's a fad. It it didn't show a, a respect for the culture, or uh-huh. the beauty of the culture. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So this poor little girl, she just doesn't have a chance. She doesn't have no. a chance. 
<laughs> Probably not. Right, right, right. So we've got a few minutes. Um so you, we're gonna give you about two and a half. Kinda talk mm-hmm. to the audience. Tell them something that you want to resonate with them so that they know that they need to um heal. Well, I have, uh, let's see if I can find it. Um, I have a statement that I make, and as a matter of fact, I usually put it on um, on my flyers or my material, but it says, we've all been wounded, and our wounds, if left unattended and unhealed, rob us of those things most central to our happiness and well-being, our relationship with self and others, and intentional grief, and ritual is good medicine. So the point I'm making is that there's not a single one of us that has not been wounded. There's not a single one of us that hasn't experienced loss. But most of us have not had an opportunity to attend to those wounds, address those losses in a healthy way, and in community. There's something to be said of grieving loss and and hurt in a community of other people who are doing the same thing as opposed to doing what they teach in this society, and that is you go somewhere in a corner and you sit by yourself and you deal with it by yourself. So I would like to leave the the audience with the understanding that there's no one out there that hasn't been wounded and hasn't suffered loss. But you have to ask yourself the personal question, what have I really done about it other than maybe cry? and talk to my pastor about it, talk to my partner about it, talk to my mom or dad about it, or talk to somebody in my group about it. Because more than talking about it is required. And you have to know that I must intentionally create a safe space for myself to dig deep down inside myself and to do the work that's necessary for me to discover what it is inside of me that causes me to function in a way that I'm not the best that I can possibly be. Because I'm talking about us being the best that we can be. And until we do our healing and our grief work, we're not operating on all eight cylinders. We're not being the best that we can be. And so that's that's what I would like to leave with the um, with the audience. And if you're interested in learning more about this, um, you can contact me. I have a Facebook page, Bonnie Harrison, and there are several Bonnie Harrisons out there, too, that I found out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm the only black one that I found, though. Everybody else is white. and uh, But I'm Bonnie Harrison from New York City, and I, so I have a Facebook page for that. I have one called Harlem Eats Well because I'm also interested in healthy eating and the politics of food. Mm. Um, I have one called The Transforming Woman. That's also a page uh, on Facebook. And then I have the Mommy Letters uh, performances. So if if I come to your city, if you want me to bring it to your city, because Mommy Letters deals with what happens to us as little girls as a result of what happened to our moms who did not protect us. Some Mm. of us grew up in houses, homes, because I grew up in a house of violence. My father, you know, he was an alcoholic, and he was very violent physically. So uh, that impacted me and impacted every relationship I chose to be in. I didn't understand it at the time I do now, and that's why I 
so much of my work is about healing that broken relationship and and dealing with uh, these mother-daughter issues. Because sometimes people think the issues are with their dads. My father wasn't at home, or he was mean and brutal, or he raped me. And that's true. And you have issues Bonnie, with them, too. Stop but you. guess what? Ba- you would have I issues with we mom. Gotta have, we're going we're gonna to make this another show. Um, okay. Well, you mean, I think two, three shows. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, but we, I, I just think we got a few to, shows we, with this one. So we have to deal with the issues with our mothers back. first. Okay, well, that'll uh-huh. be great. With I'll love to come back because there's a okay. lot that we can still talk about about mom and daughter's relationships and mom and sons, too. Perfect. But thank Perfect. you for having Definitely. me on your show. I'm well, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank and you, so you, can, you can refer people to my site. If they have questions, they can post them, send me messages, or you have my um, email address. Uh, I think you do, Teresa. Yep. Bonnie. Yeah, do. NYC sixty five. Yeah, yeah. So post yeah. it, and people we, can communicate with uh-huh. me if they'd like. And um, when you have another show, and it's appropriate for me to be on, if my schedule permits, I'd be happy. Definitely. Okay. Well, thank you again, Bonnie. Appreciate thank you so thanks much. Thanks so much, Bonnie. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you for having me on the show. Bye bye. Okay. Good night. Bye bye. So Michelle. Well, Terry, it's a wrap. <laughs> it's a wrap. <laughs> It's a wrap. Uh huh. We'll talk throughout the week, okay? Okay. All right. Have a good one. Okay. (laughs) You too. (laughs) Bye bye. Uh